Zara, I am so excited to talk about today's sponsor. It's the new film, Challenges. It's from the director of Call Me By Your Name, Luca Guadagnino, and stars and is produced by none other than our girl Zendaya. Yeah, you know I love her. You love her too. I love her so much. Zendaya plays Tashi Duncan, a former tennis prodigy turned coach who is married to a Grand Slam champion, currently on a losing streak. And if that's not bad enough, Tashi's strategy to help her husband break his curse sort of takes a surprising and awkward turn. Hmm, awkward indeed. Because now he must face off against his former best friend and Tashi's ex-boyfriend, Patrick. Zara, the tensions are running high. I know. Tashi's someone who makes no apologies for her game on and off the court. It's her game, her rules, but with her past and present colliding, Tashi must face reality and ask herself, what will it cost to win? Challenges is the sexy drama that everyone's talking about and it's definitely not one you want to miss. It's about passion, friendship and what happens when your past comes back to challenge you. You can grab a ticket from Tuesday the 26th. So grab your friends and get excited. I will be grabbing you and we are definitely going to be going to watch it. Oh, please. Thank you so much to Challenges for making this episode of Shameless possible. She's the woman you've likely heard disparaging remarks about since you were a little kid. So who is Yoko Ono and what exactly was her influence over the most successful band in music history? Welcome to Scandal from Shameless Podcast, the stories of the biggest celebrity controversies revisited. Hello, Zara McDonald. Michelle Andrews, I have been looking forward to doing this one for a long time because, again, I found that the story of Yoko Ono has been a big gap in my knowledge. Yeah, I agree. I think we're also familiar with the name but not as familiar with the woman and the story. So hopefully in this two-part series on John Lennon and Yoko Ono, we can give our listeners, particularly those who are our age, Zara, in their 20s or maybe their early 30s, an idea as to exactly what the hell went down because it is one of the more colourful celebrity stories we've come across. Yeah, absolutely. And I think when it comes to my perception of Yoko Ono, it's definitely been framed over the years as a really simplistic one that Yoko Ono came in, broke up the Beatles, and that's kind of all I really knew Mm. to be quote-unquote true. That's the only thing that anyone ever said. But I was like, surely there is so much more depth here than meets the eye. I think we should say from the outset as well, like this is not a story about the Beatles. There's been a great documentary recently drop about the Beatles on Disney+. Plus. This is not that. There will be quite a bit of Beatles history in here because to understand the influence of Yoko Ono, you certainly need to understand the influence of the Beatles. But this is primarily about the relationship between Yoko Ono and John Lennon and what their relationship taught us about how we talk about women in the public eye. Yeah, particularly women of colour. While researching this episode, we also discovered how important it is to understand who John Lennon was and why he made the certain decisions that he did in his life. So we will get to Yoko Ono because she is, of course, half of this story. But to get to that half, we need to meet John first. Yeah, let's do that. Let's go right back to October 1940. All right, Zara. So John Lennon was born on the 9th of October 1940 in Liverpool. His dad, Alfred, was a merchant seaman who was frequently away at sea during World War II. 
He actually wasn't there. Alfred was not there when John Lennon was born and was often away. It was kind of setting the scene for John's childhood that John Lennon grew up with a huge absence in his life. Alfred was never there. Yeah, he didn't have a lot of stability in those early years. He would often actually be looked after by his aunt Mimi. Now, when John was actually three years old in 1944, his father actually went missing and the paychecks he would send home stopped arriving. Strangely, this story, Alfred actually eventually came home six months later, but John's mother, Julia, was Mm. pregnant with another man's child. Now, during his mother's pregnancy, John went off to live with his uncle and his family for eight months. So as we were saying, just that lack of stability there of parents who aren't always present in his life, even as a toddler. Yeah, parents who you could say might not be ready to be parents at all. Huge levels of upheaval in John Lennon's early life. John did go back to live with his mum and her new boyfriend in 1946. He was five years old and did not appreciate or warm to the new father figure in his life. He actually reportedly on one day walked over two miles to turn up at his aunt Mimi's doorstep to get away from his mum's new boyfriend. So it's very similar to Marilyn Monroe, actually, this young child who doesn't know where home is. Yeah, absolutely. Now, when John was five years old, Alfred actually came to visit and took John on a holiday to Blackpool on the coast of England. Now, he had a plan to secretly emigrate with John to New Zealand, but Julia showed up to take John back. According to the biography John Lennon by Philip Norman, Alfred made John choose at five years old whether he wanted to go with his mum or stay with his dad. Mm. He took his dad's hand reportedly before panicking and running after his mum. That's just an impossible choice for a kid. Yeah. John said that his mother, and I quote, just couldn't deal with life. He actually ended up in the custody of Aunt Mimi, who was concerned for his welfare while he was living under his mum's roof. Now, as part of the research for this episode, we watched the documentary Imagine John Lennon, which collated over 100 hours of interview footage about his life. One interview actually showed his aunt Mimi talking about raising her nephew. Here's a snippet of what she had to say about that time. It was my job to be there. He never came into an empty house. He was inventive and was always the leader. Every time he sat down, he never wasted a minute. John did say that he saw his mother over the years. She actually played him Elvis Presley records and taught him how to play the banjo. But while at school, John really struggled. He once said that the other kids were actually told to stay away from him. This was his quote. Parents instinctively recognised I was a troublemaker, meaning I did not conform and I would influence their children, which I did. In 1956, John's mum bought him his first guitar. So she wasn't in his life, but she was influencing his love of music. That same year, when he was 15, about to turn 16, he actually formed a folk band called the Quarrymen, named after his high school, Quarry Bank High. Now, a mutual friend bought 15-year-old Paul McCartney along to watch the band's performance or one of the band's performances. And Paul remembered that John was wearing a checkered shirt with, and I quote, sort of blondish hair, little bit curly, sideburns, looking pretty cool. (laughs) And he was playing one of those guitars, not a very good one, but he was making a very good job of it. Yeah, Paul and John got talking after the show. John even watched Paul play a little bit of guitar backstage and could see that Paul had a heap of talent. So despite them only having just met, John actually asked Paul to join the band on the spot. The very next day, 
that offer was accepted. Did you know that they'd known each other since the age of 15 or 16? God, no. I did not know that. That no. makes the story that much sweeter, I think, that Paul McCartney and John Lennon have known each other forever or had known each other forever. Now, when he was 16, John went on to study at Liverpool College of the Arts. But a year later, when he was 17, tragedy struck. His mum was walking home when she was hit and killed by a car driven by an off-duty policeman. Yeah. John said heartbreakingly that he lost his mother twice. The quote reads, once as a five-year-old and once again when I was re-establishing my relationship with her. That was a really hard time for me and it just absolutely made me very, very bitter and the underlying chip I had on my shoulder as a youth was really big then. It was very traumatic for me. Now, John Lennon and Paul McCartney reportedly bonded over the tragedy because Paul's mum had actually died of breast cancer two years earlier. As Rolling Stone wrote, Working together, John and Paul found a new place in the world. They wrote songs together, shooting melodic and lyrical ideas back and forth, and even after they began writing apart, each still counted on the other to help finish or improve a song. Yeah, the death of John's mother shaped him beyond measure. He would go on to write the song Julia with lyrics like, half of what I say is meaningless, but I say it just to reach you, Julia. Now, the same year that his mother died, John met another woman who have a huge influence on his life, Zara. Her name was Cynthia Powell. Yeah, so John met Cynthia in his first year of college. She was actually a year older than him. He was turning 18 that year and she was turning 19. Now, in a quote about meeting John, she said, he was rough, ready and not my type at all to start off with. But again, this enigmatic character you couldn't resist. He was like a teddy boy. He walked around without his glasses, a guitar on his shoulder and a look that said kill. A look that said kill. While Cynthia believed that John was out of her league, those around her thought the opposite was true. According to a classmate, Cynthia, and I quote, could have had anyone she wanted. She had lovely eyes and she was the sweetest, nicest person you could ever meet. Her father had also passed away when she was young, so she understood intimately the grief he was going through. Yeah, at the end of the 1958 winter term, 18-year-old John asked 19-year-old Cynthia to go with him to the college dance. Now, she told him she was engaged to her steady boyfriend, Barry. Going steady. Going steady. (laughs) And John apparently shouted, I didn't ask you to fucking marry me, did I? (laughs) What a charmer. I know, such a charmer. (laughs) Woo, I'm so woo. (laughs) After the party, though, Cynthia decided to end her relationship with Barry so that she could be with John. They entered what was a long-running relationship, but not at all a healthy one, even from the earliest days. According to Philip Norman's biography of John Lennon's life, Everything he asked, she gave unstiltingly. Her eight shilling daily subsistence allowance kept him in coffees, fish and chips, capstan full strength cigarettes and replacement guitar strings. She did his college work for him when he could not be bothered to finish or begin it and neglected her own whenever he demanded attention. To please John, she changed her whole appearance into one hopefully resembling his ultimate fantasy woman, Bridget Bardot, dyeing her hair blonde and wearing skin tight skirts and fishnet stockings with garter belts. As their relationship progressed, John became obsessed with Cynthia. He would write her long love letters and beg her not to catch the train back home so she would spend the night at his place. 
He became what seems to be incredibly possessive and insecure in the relationship. He once punched a fellow student who asked her to dance at a college event and he later admitted, I demanded absolute trust from her because I wasn't trustworthy myself. I was neurotic, taking out all my frustrations at her. I find that first half of the quote you just read out to be so illuminating. I demanded absolute trust from her because I wasn't trustworthy myself. I feel like that has rung true so many times in my Life, when I've seen other people's relationship, one person has trust issues, one person demands absolute trustworthiness because they know within themselves they don't have that. Yeah, it's really illuminating. Now, Cynthia, we should also note, has also alleged that John was physically abusive towards her. In a BBC documentary, she said that she went out with a friend to a club and was given a lift home by two boys. When she told John about it, she alleged he slapped her in the face. In her autobiography, Cynthia also alleged that the day after she danced with John's old bandmate at a party, 18-year-old John Lennon hit her across the face so hard her head struck a heating pipe on the wall. As a result, she actually broke up with him for three months in 1959, but ultimately they got back together when John begged. Yeah, in an interview, a later interview with Playboy, John Lennon admitted to being physically abusive to women. He said this, I used to be cruel to my woman and physically any woman. I was a hitter. I couldn't express myself and I hit. I fought men and I hit women. I don't know how I feel. I mean, I know how I feel about that quote, which is like, a bit of disgust and I, I don't even I feel so complicated about the self-awareness too because it's like well if you were self-aware and about how bad it is how did you ever do it and I know that might mm. be a very simplistic way to look at it but it's dark it's disorienting to have such gross behavior but also have someone be so honest about it yes because it's like part of you wants them to be honest but then it's like are you honest without realizing the damage you caused or do you recognize that damage you're just not touching on it right here it's incredibly complex. I don't even, I don't know, but I think, I think you've nailed it in terms of why I feel so complicated and uncomfortable about that quote. Mm, Cynthia said that after they got back together, John never again physically abused her, but that he would be, and I quote, verbally cutting and unkind. She also said that he had a rampant demand for sex. Yes, we might hear a bit more about that later. But for now, the quarryman, back to John's actual music and his passion, had continued to grow and gain new members. So Paul McCartney had invited his 15-year-old friend George to join as lead guitarist, and the three of them started playing as Johnny and the Moondogs through (laughs) college. What a name. I know. In January 1960, John enlisted another friend from art school called Stuart Sutcliffe to join on bass guitar and the group had decided that they wanted to come up with some sort of (laughs) bog-related name inspired by Buddy Holly and his American rock and roll band The Crickets. Now, after trying The Beatles, they changed it to The Silver Beetle, but by July, they'd settled on calling themselves The Beatles. Yeah. Now, when we were doing research for this, I looked at you and I said, it's so funny to me, something so iconic and so highbrow, I guess, as Mm. The Beatles can come from such immaturity, like 15-year-old kids, 16-year-old kids, 17-year-old kids running around being like, I just want to name this band after a bug. Yeah, exactly. Like they're all sitting around and be like, well, the crickets work, so what's another (laughs) bug-related name that can work for us? Now, the Beatles recruited a drummer and also scored a residency in Hamburg quite early on. For the next two years, they played stints in Germany as well as playing at clubs and pubs in the UK. 
John and Paul remained the band's driving force. Rolling Stone later described their partnership as the richest songwriting collaboration in all of popular music. The band would often perform at this old kind of wine cellar turned music venue known as the Cavern Club. And in between 1961 and 1963, the Beatles were said to have played there 292 times. Mm. And I think it's looking back on stories like this when you get a sense of consistency and work ethic when success makes a whole lot of sense. Yeah, like pounding the pavement. Yes, yes, you can look at how quickly they rose, but also how hard they worked in such a short amount of time. I mean, two years and you're performing at one venue 292 times explains a lot. The Beatles' first real break came in November 1961 when John Lennon was 21 years old. Sitting at the back of the room in one of their performances was actually a 27-year-old local record store owner and music columnist named Brian Epstein. In the documentary, imagine John Lennon, Brian said, I was immediately struck by their music, their beat and their sense of humour actually on stage. And even afterwards, when I met them, I was struck again by their personal charm. And it was there that really it all started. After the show, Brian offered himself up to be the band's manager and they said yes. Now, it took about eight months for them to score their first recording contract under Universal Music Group, which is actually not that long in the grand scheme of time. After their first recording session in June 1962, their producer complained that the drummer that they had wasn't good enough, so the Beatles replaced him with none other than Ringo Starr. Brutal, but it had to happen. Imagine being the guy who just missed out on being in the Beatles. For every story of success, there's always one person that just missed out on it. (laughs) On the periphery who just got pipped at the post. I love it. But it wasn't always a given that the Beatles were going to make it. But it sounds like John Lennon, despite all of his flaws, did have this real leadership element to his personality. He explained in one interview, when the band was depressed, thinking that we were going nowhere and this is a shitty deal and we're in a shitty dressing room, I'd say, where are we going, fellas? And they'd go to the top, Johnny. And I'd say, where's that, fellas? And they'd say, to the toppermost of the poppermost, and we'd all sort of cheer up. He fundamentally believed as well in what they were doing. There's another quote of his where he said, when I was a Beatle, I thought we were the best fucking group in the goddamn world. And believing that is what made us what we were. It was just a matter of time before everyone else caught on. There's a lot of Stevie Nicks about that quote. Mm. Like, I know we tend to now make parallels in some of these scandal series, but I do think when you really start delving into people's stories and how they became celebrities and famous and successful in the conventional sense of the word, you do have these really common threads about people who really fundamentally believe in themselves and just know that they're going to make it. I think as well when you're looking at characters like John Lennon or Stevie Nicks, you're talking about the what? One in a hundred million people. There are going to be parallels in their personality. There's going to be reasons to draw on why these particular people made it. And I think a sense of belief was absolutely crucial in both stories. Zara, when we come back from the break, we are going to hear all about John Lennon's rock star Playboy rep. But before we get there, let's hear a word from today's sponsor. So while the Beatles are really trying to kind of carve their path niche, John's personal life around this time, though, sounded like a total mess. Now, according to Philip Norman's biography, in 1962, the same year that they signed that recording contract, despite being with Cynthia, John Lennon started an affair with a 19-year-old Beatles groupie by the name of Patricia Inder. 
Now, apparently, John used to call her my little Bridget Bardot and wrote the song Hello, Little Girl about her. Something weird weird about that. Creepy about that for sure. In August 1962, while the affair with Patricia was going on, Cynthia discovered that she was pregnant with John's child. Now, this timing was nothing short of terrible. John was just turned 21. He was on the edge of global stardom. And when Cynthia told him the news, he quite calmly and matter-of-factly said that they should get married and the sooner the better. John was still penniless at this time. Sure, people were starting to recognise his skill, but he wasn't doing too well financially. So his aunt Mimi gave him £10 to buy Cynthia a wedding ring. Now, what is most interesting about this story, Michelle, is that meanwhile, Brian, the band's manager, was actually trying to organise a simple ceremony while trying to also keep Cynthia's existence concealed from the public. Why did that matter? Well, it mattered quite a bit. Yeah. In that Philip Norman biography, this is explained. Brian's hasty study of pop star management had taught him one golden rule for young male stars and would-be stars. To win the devotion of teenage girls, they must seem to be footloose, fancy free, and thus theoretically available to each and every one of their fans. Wives were a complete non-starter. Fiancés and regular girlfriends, almost as risky, and boyfriends, of course, completely off the chart. John had to remain single in the eyes of the public in order for him to be a rock star. Yeah, on Brian's orders, Cynthia and their child had to be kept a secret from, like, the growing legions of Beatles fans. Now, she did an interview with Fresh Air's Terry Gross in 1985 where she said, if the main man in the group, John, was found to be married, then it might take away from that particular success. So I walked around pregnant for quite a long time hiding it. I'd wear very big, blousy clothes. In fact, I was asked many times if I was John's wife and I had to refuse and say, no, no, I'm somebody else. When it came to the wedding between Cynthia and John, there were no wedding photographs. There was no honeymoon. In fact, the night that they got married, John played with the Beatles at the River Park Ballroom in Chester while Cynthia kind of officially began her role of homemaker back at their house. Secret homemaker though. It's so sad. Like I I cannot imagine being told, okay, you can be John's wife, but you have to be hidden from public view and you have to be mistreated and completely discarded of. Yeah, you're not important in this story. And she was made known of that. Despite getting married and having a baby on the way, John reportedly kept the affair with Patricia going while simultaneously having another affair with a girl named Ida Holy. Now, It is clear, very clear with all of this, that he really struggled to come to terms with his new responsibilities as a husband and a soon-to-be dad Mm. and like this rising rock star. Yeah, he has spoken about his philandering ways before. He once admitted, I did feel embarrassed walking around married. It felt like walking around with odd socks on or your fly open. Back to the band, though, less than a year after they were spotted by their manager performing, the Beatles released their first single. It came out in October 1962 and was called Love Me Do. It peaked at number 17 on the British charts. They were performing on BBC Radio. And by January 1963, just, what, three months later, their second single, Please Please Me, hit number one. Yeah, that's like an insane level of success very, Mm. very quickly. From there, the Beatles went from strength to strength. In March 1963, they released their first album, again, only about six months after they released their first single. 
It was an album of the same title. It was the first of 11 consecutive Beatles albums to reach number one on the charts. Now, their third single, From Me To You, hit number one on the charts. Their fourth single, She Loves You, became the fastest-selling record in the UK up to that time, selling 750,000 copies in less than four weeks. Wow. The Beatles had also carved out a very distinct look for themselves. They were performing in matching suits with chunky Cuban heel boots and mop-top hairstyles. 22-year-old John was on tour in April when Cynthia gave birth to their son, Julian Lennon. He actually missed his own child's birth just as his dad had missed his birth. Yeah, the Beatles were moving full steam ahead. That year, they played for some of the largest TV audiences the UK had seen. They performed for the British royal family and were front page news almost every day in major British newspapers. It was 1963 that we also saw a rise of a phenomenon now described by the media as Beatlemania. Yeah, US academic Christine Feldman Barrett once explained this was the name given to describe the ecstatic female-led fan culture surrounding surrounding the Beatles between 1963 and 1966. Now, it's really interesting reading about this time and getting kind of touch points on it from the people who lived through it. Novelist Linda Grant, who was 12 years old and living in Liverpool when she first heard the Beatles singles, said, everybody was a Beatles fan. You just knew you were in the centre of the universe. The Beatles belonged to every teenage girl. I feel like I was there at the birth of pop music. The Beatles are the book of Genesis. I love that quote. This kind of wild fandom, though, bewildered the press and experts. One science journal reported the headline, Beatles reaction puzzles even psychologists. I also didn't realise how quickly this happened. Like we said before, their first single was released in October 1962. We're talking about Beatlemania kind of exploding in 1963. Like that's less than a year later. That's insane to me. Yeah, it's like the reaction to One Direction on heat. Like I remember growing up and seeing how people would respond to One Direction and kind of being puzzled by that. This was that on steroids. Apparently, according to the Beatles anthology, so frenzied was the fandom that some women were desperate to touch, physically touch any of the four band members because there was this kind of conspiracy theory amongst Beatle fanatics that the four men actually possessed supernatural powers. They weren't human. They were so deified that they held no human qualities anymore. It's crazy. And the Evening Standard declared 1963 the year of the Beatles and wrote that an examination of the heart of the nation at this moment would reveal the name Beatles engraved upon Mm. it. So in the UK, they were massive, but the real test for British bands or any international band at that time was actually cracking into the very meaty US market. Now, this had proven to be almost impossibly hard for the bands that came before them, but for the Beatles, breaking into America wasn't that difficult at all. After one of their songs was played on American radio one time, people started going crazy for them. Yeah, they started requesting the songs. And I think Beatlemania was probably, what, six months behind the UK. It really hit the US in February 1964 when they appeared on the Ed Sullivan Show, which is a TV program that was watched at the time by 73 million people or 34% of the country. And then suddenly, I guess you've got an entire country like the US split into two camps, those who worshipped the Beatles and those who kind of scoffed at their long haircuts, the way they balked at convention and considered them, I guess, overrated. Yeah, who just didn't get the hype. 
Fast forward to 1966 and the Beatles were pumping out albums, tours and projects. By now they'd released seven albums and in the midst of all of that were also appointed as members of the Order of the British Empire by Queen Elizabeth. So things are going exceptionally, exceptionally well. That is, if I may, that is like seven albums in four years. Yeah. That's a crazy amount of work. It's making hay while the sun shines, well, we, for sure. We know that Taylor Swift releases, what, every two years or something. Yeah. Like, maybe not the most perfect parallel, but to give you some context, that is so much work. It's hyper-prolific. Yeah, and so while all of this was going on, you can understand, perhaps, that John was really struggling in his personal life. He said he was perplexed by the intensity of the fandom and was burnt out by the Beatles' massive recording and touring <laughs> schedule. I mean, no shit. <laughs> Looking back on this time, he said, don't you think the Beatles gave every sodden thing they'd got to be the Beatles? That took a whole section of our youth, a whole period. While everyone else our age was just goofing off, we were working 25 hours a day. Yeah, 25 hours in a 24-hour day. I actually don't even doubt it. They definitely found an extra hour somewhere. John was still married to Cynthia, but later told Rolling Stone that the band was living a very wild life on tour. He said, if we couldn't get groupies, we'd have whores and everything, whatever was going. When we were in town, we hit it. There was no pissing about. There's photographs of me crawling about in Amsterdam on my knees, coming out of whorehouses and things like that. The police escorted me to the places because they never wanted a big scandal. Boy, oh boy did we protect and still protect in many ways but boy did we protect famous men back then god yeah even look at how our language has changed quite hugely mm. just like how prolific he used the word whore and whorehouse through this time John was struggling to be a father while giving so much of his life to the Beatles. In the documentary, Imagine John Lennon, he can be heard saying, I don't remember seeing him as a child. You know, it was the height of the Beatle thing, so I was working all the time. I never considered what it was doing to Julian. I didn't even count it. His mother was at home. I was away. Like most guys at 24, 25 who are too intent on their career, you know. I don't know. You know. You know, just casually too into my career to father my child, you know. The Beatles anyway, particularly John, was saying some edgy, edgy things to the media around this time. Sure, you could pass off the majority of the stuff they said as just rock and roll and boys being boys. But then John said something in July 1966 that people could not let go of. He had actually done an interview with the London Evening Standard where he said, Christianity will go. It will vanish and shrink. I needn't argue about that. I know I'm right and I will be proved right. We're more popular than Jesus now. Jesus was all right, but his disciples were thick and ordinary. Right. <laughs> so, so many layers to this. Yes, the ego, but also we're at a time in the 60s where you've got a huge proportion of people who are Catholic and who follow Jesus and probably don't want to be told that a rock star is bigger than Jesus. Well, it's America. Think about the hold that Christianity has on America and on people who might also consider themselves rock and roll fans and to say you're more popular than Jesus. But it's not just that, that the Jesus disciples were thick and ordinary yeah. is quite <sighs> offensive to a lot of people, no matter what you believe to be true. Now, by July, that quote was actually reprinted in an American teen magazine called date book and just sent off an absolute international furore and threatened the Beatles' future as a band and their lives. Yeah. So in the southern states of America, radio stations actually started 
banning the Beatles' music. Some DJs went so far as to smash their records live on air in protest. There were mass burnings as stations publicly torched their entire stocks of Beatle music. At one point, the Pope even denounced John Lennon's statements, saying some subjects must not be dealt with profanely, even in the world of the Beatniks. Governments in South Africa and Spain issued official condemnations. When we talk about a scandal, when we talk about a backlash, this was as big as it could get. Yeah, that same year, after years of touring, John, George and Ringo convinced Paul that they should stop performing their music live. For about three months, all four of them actually went their separate ways. John started to feel apprehensive that the band was over. I mean, there'd only been a band experiencing that kind of level of success for a couple of years. And he said of this time, I was thinking, well, this is the end, really. There's no more touring. That means there's going to be a blank space in the future. That's where I really started considering life without the Beatles. What would it be? And that's when the seed was planted that I had to somehow get out of the Beatles without being thrown out by the others. But I could never step out of the palace because it was too frightening. Do you think he's alluding there that maybe his bandmates were really fucking angry for the shit he was saying publicly? Yes. Like he's the one who's repeatedly landing them in hot in water. Dumpster fires yeah. of awfulness by the shit he's telling the media. Is him saying the seed was planted that I had to somehow get out of the Beatles without being thrown out by the others? Him being self aware to be like, if I don't leave first, they will leave me and my ego can't handle that. I think that's absolutely what he's saying. It's like, how do I form an exit plan without being thrown out, without being fired from the band that I created? Mm. Now, in November 1966, only about three or four months, Mish, after those quotes were published in that US magazine, John visited an art gallery in London the day before an exhibition of experimental artworks was set to open and there he was introduced to the artist. Her name was Yoko Ono and she apparently had absolutely no idea who he was. I am obsessed with the fact that Yoko Ono had no idea who John Lennon was when they first met. Now, Yoko was born in 1933 in Tokyo, so she was older than John. She was the eldest of two musicians. Her mother sang and played string instruments. Her father had an early career as a concert pianist before going into banking. Very musical family. Like Very. music was in her blood. Through her mother, Yoko Ono actually belonged to one of Japan's four wealthiest commercial families. Her great-grandfather founded the Third National Bank of Japan. Not bad. And so she did enjoy a life of extraordinary privilege and luxury. When she was two years old, her family moved to San Francisco where her father had been working but soon after, they all actually moved back to Japan to escape the wave of anti-Japanese sentiment that swept the US following the Japanese attack of Pearl Harbor. Now, there is a misconception that Yoko only turned to music after she married John Lennon. But in reality, and as we just touched on in her childhood, she had trained to become a musician from the earliest of ages. As the New York Times later wrote, Yoko's dad, and I quote, was determined that his daughter would fulfill his own musical dreams, going so far as to measure her hands at night to assess her future as a pianist. When she was 18, she and her parents moved to Scarsdale in New York, where she actually studied composition at Lawrence College. Yeah, she eventually dropped out of college, moved to the city, and at the age of 23, eloped with a young composer from Juilliard named Toshi Ichianagi. Yoko studied at the New School and played music with her husband at one of New York's best-known jazz clubs called Village Gate. So again, mm. I think, yes, we might be 
over explaining this point, but she was incredibly musical before John came onto the scene. And talented. I mean, look at the totally. institutions who have recognised that talent before she knew who John Lennon was. I have such a terrible confession to make. I <laughs> I wonder what? if you'll be the same. I only ever heard of Juilliard. <laughs> through, through the Hillary s- Duff film. I know, through High School Musical. <gasps> Wasn't it that? I, Someone was off to Juilliard. I thought I heard of Juilliard for the first time in Hillary Duff's movie, let me look it up, Her Brother Dies and she ends up going to, <laughs> to Juilliard because of her singing. It's called Raise Your Voice, a 2004 Disney film. And my God, if you haven't seen it, make sure you watch it. So speaking of people who aren't musically talented, that is you or I, if that's how we heard of Juilliard. (laughs) Onwards, back to Yoko. (laughs) Throughout the late 1950s and 1960s, Yoko was composing, performing and collaborating in New York. She was also gaining the attention of leading members of New York's avant-garde artistic community. Now, what I find really interesting is Yoko would later talk about how her upbringing and her family wealth pushed her towards living a life she called a little more bohemian. She told The New Yorker, there is a kind of poverty where you have an excess of things and all your energy is directed toward getting and keeping them. John was poor and it was natural for him to strive for wealth, but I came from a background of excessiveness. It was very natural for me to live in New York in a bohemian way because I was trying to get away from that. I mean, not much to be said beyond the definition of privilege is totally being able to call yourself poor when you're rich. Yeah, look, I will defend Yoko Ono wherever I can in this series, but there is a kind of poverty where you have an excess of things. There is not a kind of poverty there. That is just a woman or a person with too much privilege trying to find an edge in it. I think like rich people feel self-conscious of their own glossiness. Well, they're trying to find an identity outside the world. Yeah. And it's like, it's okay. It can be your identity if you want it to be. We don't mind. (laughs) Now, her New York lifestyle caused a rift with Yoko Ono's parents and she soon broke away from that privileged background. She actually supported herself by working as a waitress, then a public school teacher, and finally as an apartment building manager. Things weren't great in Yoko's marriage pretty early on, to be honest. By 1962, she and her husband had filed for divorce. She returned home to live with her parents in Tokyo that year and her experimental work was actually not as well received in Japan and she became clinically depressed. Her parents actually committed her to a mental asylum around this time. Yeah, as one of Yoko's dear friends, American filmmaker Anthony Cox travelled to Japan and successfully helped secure her release from that mental institution. Now, Anthony Cox and Yoko Ono went on to fall in love and got married that same year, 1962. They ended up getting the marriage annulled very soon after, but then rekindled and remarried in June 1963. Two months after that, in August, Yoko gave birth to their daughter, Kyoko. As you can probably imagine, the marriage quickly fell apart again, but they actually decided to stay together for the sake of their children and their careers. In 1964, Yoko actually unveiled her famous performance work called Cut Piece, in which she would sit alone on stage in her best suit with a pair of scissors in front of her and she would allow viewers to cut a piece of her clothes off to keep. She also published her breakthrough conceptual art book called Grapefruit. Mm, Two years after that, in 1966, Yoko made the decision to move to London. There she held one of her more eccentric art exhibitions, which included an installation called Apple. Essentially, it was a green apple sitting on top of a plexiglass pedestal. The day before it opened to the public, guess who came by? John Lennon came by (laughs) and this was the first time that John and Yoko had met and she wasn't impressed with how he behaved. 
She later recalled to MoMA, he saw the apple, you know, he didn't say anything. He just grabbed it and bit it and looked at me like, you know, there, you know. I was so furious. I didn't know what to say and it all showed in my face. How dare this person mess around with my work? So he just said, I'm sorry and just put it on the stand again. Yeah. Yoko and John did not exchange phone numbers. John went back to be with the Beatles and they released their biggest album yet, Sgt Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Yoko kept working on her experimental art, but within three years, almost everything would change. Not only would John's marriage to Cynthia end, so too would his involvement with the band that started everything. And for that, Mish, the public wanted someone to blame and that person was Yoko Ono. But all of that is coming on next week's episode of Scandal. Next week's episode of Scandal. We will see you there. There is a lot to cover. Yeah, there he is, guys. Thank you so much for listening to part one in this two-part series. We have so much to cover next week as well. (laughs) Thanks, as always, to our researcher, Justine Landis-Hanley, for helping us pull this one together. And if you guys want to hear more from us, see more from us, we are on Instagram at Shameless Podcast. Guys, thank you so much. We'll see you later. Bye. 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 